You can turn back then to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. We continue on in our this delightful study of the life of Abraham. And as much as studying Abraham, what we really are seeing is the power of God at work, isn't he? The patience of God at work, the, the compassion of God at work. We see the sovereignty of God at work as God carries on his plan. And as we see this, this, all, this, all this detail concerning Ab Abraham and much of it surrounds the promise that God made to Abraham, we are seeing a God who, who, has, who has a program. God has not left this world to chance. He is a sovereign God who is in control, and he's going to bring it to the conclusion he chooses to bring it to someday in eternity. In the meantime, that included a chosen people in the Old Testament, a, the, the sons of Abraham, those he had chosen to be bearers of his word, to represent him on earth, the special people. And that's why this promise made to Abraham is so important. We see it repeated over and over again, God affirming the promise, the promise, the promise. We see Paul referring to it in the New Testament as the promise, as the basis even of our faith, because through Abraham came the Savior, the Messiah. And so we're seeing not only the emphasis on the promise, but the development of Abraham and God teaching him to trust him, that simple trust. And that's what we see in Abraham. It's nothing real complicated. He had his ups and his downs, his failures and his successes, but God wants to, wants to train in him, as he does each of us, the simplicity of faith. And it was, reminds me, as we study this verse, the, hall of, the chapter of what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. And that's how you and I are to live, if you're a believer here this morning. The just shall live by faith. And rather than live by sight, in our own, based on our own intuition, logic, and reason, we, we live a life in which we trust our God. And we find our reasoning found in a biblical worldview, in biblical promises, and biblical precepts, and we live life on that basis. Because as we make decisions in life, we make them on the basis of what, what is valuable to us. And we're either going to value our own resources and opinions, or we're going to value the things of God. And sometimes those things seem un unreasonable and irrational and even impossible, like having a kid at 100 years old. And, and yet God says, just trust me. It's a simple, simple thing. He asks of us, isn't it? And the basic, and what we've seen in this passage is God reminds Abram in various ways over and over again that he is the almighty God. He is God almighty. He is the creator. He has the ability to back up his promises. And it's as we see the character of God declared in the scriptures, demonstrated in the scriptures, that our faith is strengthened. It becomes the basis of our faith because we have a God who is able. And that's why the Bible says even the creation declares the glory of God. And what does it declare about God? His, his, his power, his, the wonder of his design, his ability to keep this planet um, going and so on. We see God at work and it becomes a basis of faith. And that's why in that same chapter in Hebrews 11 verse 3, it says, by faith we understand the worlds are framed by God. And so it's, the, it's a character of God that becomes the basis of our faith. And that's why it's so important for you and I to, to know him, to be in the scriptures. God reaffirms to Abram over and over again his character. Well, he's going to reaffirm the covenant once again in this chapter. Let's go ahead and read chapter 17, the first eight verses here, where, where it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. 
walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so once again, we see this affirmation of the covenant. But before he begins, God once again introduces himself as Almighty God and makes an important statement. Walk before me and be blameless. It reminded me of a chap back in chapter 15 where God came to Abram and said in a vision, in chapter 15, verse 1, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and exceeding great reward. And we have these tremendous statements that's when God introduces himself as almighty, but based on being the almighty, God says, you can trust me. I can be your shield and your reward. Here in chapter 17, he points to what he expects from Abram. He says, walk before me and be perfect. Two tremendous statements he makes here to Abram. The idea of walk before me is the idea of living in, his, in, in the presence of God. In fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it that way. When it's, instead of walk before me, he says, live in my presence. Live in my presence. And the idea he's impressing upon Abram is that his life is to be centered, as the New Testament puts it, with Christ in God. He is to be the essence of his life, the center of his life, the preeminent one, as Colossians says, and that is where we are to live his life. In the New Testament, we understand that because Jesus lives in us, we are to enjoy an abiding relationship with, with him, a daily fellowship with him, because that's why God created us. You know, the sin thing has interrupted our relationship and fellowship with God, and we, as, as when we're born into the world as sinners, we have a natural affinity and attachment to this world system. We think that's the essence of life, getting all the gusts you can get while well, the getting's good. Where God teaches us that the essence of life is himself. It is his person. It is the creator who is the almighty, yet he's personal. We're seeing that in the life of Abraham, Abraham, that he's a personal God. And he wants us to walk before him, to answer to him, to look to him, to depend on him, to enjoy him in our lives. And he's given us a myriad of promises as our father to help us navigate life here, hasn't he? And then he also says, be blameless. Be blameless. The word blameless really is translated in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. It's, as the word perfect is used, be perfect, be upright, be complete, be without blemish, be whole. And so being blameless simply means more than staying out of trouble, not getting caught. That's kind of when we think of it. You know, don't get caught. Don't, don't give any reason for someone to blame you of something. It means much more than that, doesn't it? It reminded me of the verse in 1 Peter where God says, Be holy as I am holy. That's the idea. Before God, we're to be blameless. And we're to live righteously, don't we? And all righteous seems like a big word, but it simply means being right. Of course, we've got to decide whose standards are the right and wrong. 
But according to God, it simply means to be right with God, to live right before God. The standard he, de he, he delineates for us in his word. And so it's his word we keep in order to keep this admonition to be holy or to be blameless. That's God's objective for us. And you might think, well, I don't do a very good job at that. Well, neither did Abraham and Sarah. But God would develop you and I to teach us as we, as we, develop, as we grow in our walk of faith to live a whole life to be complete, to be mature, to be like Christ. That's the work God is doing in each of us, to find wholeness in our life. And that wholeness is found as we are made into his image. If I could steal Dr. Pentecost, James Dad's title for one of his books he wrote, Designed to be Like Him. You know, he had a great knack for picking great titles. And this is one of them. That's the essence of life. We're designed to be like him. It is sin that draws us away from him, sin, him that, sin that pollutes our image before him, and God is ever bringing us back into that mold to be like him. And that's the essence of life. See, Christianity is more than just going to church and observing a few rules. It's recognizing our origins, our identity, that we are created by our creator to honor, to glorify him, to reflect him, and to enjoy him. And that's the place of greatest blessing. And as we grow to be more like him, we get to enjoy life as he designed, don't we? As we live in his presence, it's where we fit, so to speak. In fact, someone mentioned to me a couple weeks ago after a message that living the Christian life, though it may seem countercultural, as I mentioned during that message, to the world, it is where we fit. That's where we're comfortable because it's where God designed us to be, and that's what he is doing in our lives, and that's what he's asking of Abram here, to be blameless, to fit the purposes and the design for which I have created you. Well, after 13 years of um, waiting, we find later in the chapter that uh, Ishmael is 13, so maybe closer to 14 years. Um, the um, God comes to reaffirm this covenant. In doing so, he is going to change his name. And so from this point forward, I can quit struggling to say Abram, as I have for the last several weeks, and get back to Abraham, which will probably be confused. Who knows what they're going to hear now going forward. But God changes his name in verse 5, doesn't he? He, he? he tells him that your name is going to be Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. In other words, Abram means exalted father, according to at least to the, the linguist I read. And, but Abraham means the father of a multitude, as stated here then in the following verses. And uh, he explains why he named him the father of a multitude, because God is going to make him a father of many nations, and he's going to be exceedingly fruitful. God made promises to him and promises he was going to keep. And so God here, once again, reaffirms the covenant, but, but in doing so, he changes his name to Abraham. And what I like about Abraham, I don't see an argument here. He might say, well, I, I like my name. Well, maybe some people don't like their names. Someday I expect some of my grandkids to come and say, why did you name me that name? Just kidding, parents. But Abram, you don't see an argument here. His name is changed to Abraham because it reflects the purpose God has for him. And that's the Old, and Old Testament names were significant, weren't they? And another interesting thing here in this section is that God also then extends the covenant for sure in this promised passage to his descendants. God affirms that this 
promise that I made you, this title that I gave to you, is going to pass on through all generations. He's going to give it to, verse 7, not only between me and you, he says, and your descendants after you. This is an everlasting covenant. I'm going to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. This relationship is intended to continue on into eternity. And that's a glorious thing, isn't it? Israel has not always enjoyed the benefits of the covenant. Not always ha hasn't always, as a nation, been right with God. As it is today, they are under discipline. But God is going to keep this covenant promise on into eternity. Where he says at the end of the verse 8, he says, I will be their God. And so he promises them. And if there's any question about who owns the land, just point someone to this passage and say, well, God created it. He has a right to give it to whom he will. And he's given it to Abram and his descendants after him for an everlasting generation. And later in this book, we find that covenant confirmed is going to be confirmed through Isaac and his descendants. And then God tells them, he says, I'm going to be their God. And that's the whole point of it. Well, then we know throughout history, an interesting point is that um, I read recently that God gave Israel around 300,000 square miles of land, if you figured it, figure it out uh, geographically, and uh, someone has said they only possessed about 10% of that under the campaign under Joshua. There's a lot more land even than, uh, at stake even than the little state of Israel today. God gave them that entire region, and he will fulfill that promise Someday to them in the eternity of the future, but it kind of reminds me of, of Christians today. Do we, you know, as we grow in Christ, do we come to a place of stagnancy? Do we get to the point where, ah, you know, I'm just good enough, and you know, I'll, I have a combination. I'll live kind of a Christian life and live my life, and do we possess the blessings we have in Christ fully? That's a challenge, I think, as Israel as Israel faltered in their possessing of the land. Uh, we must not falter in our discovery and enjoyment of the blessings we have in Christ. The next section, we find God is going to seal the covenant through the rite of circumcision. And we have seen so far that God had done his part. God had repeatedly affirmed this unconditional promise to Abram of the land and a seed and a blessing. And in Genesis 15, we saw that God signed the contract, so to speak, when he passed between the pieces of the sacrifice and the normal ritual of affirming a covenant or a contract. They didn't sign on a piece of paper. They took a sacrifice, split it in two, and they walked between the pieces. And, as, and that was an affirmation of this contract. And God had done his part because he walked through it alone, which means this covenant is wholly dependent upon God to keep. It's not a two-party covenant. It's a one-party covenant made to another party, but the responsible party is God himself alone. That's what makes it an unconditional covenant. But here in this chapter, God wants Abram in a practical way to do his part. And let's go ahead and read verses 9 through 14 here, where it says, And God said to Abra Abraham, name change, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. 
Any uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so God here institutes circumcision as a seal of the, co of the covenant, as it states in as a sign, as it states in verse 11. Now, circumcision was not a unique practice in those days and ages. It wasn't a new practice. But God utilized it to enforce it upon an entire nation as a sign. And we must remember that when we consider the Old Testament and the life of Israel, that they were a sign people. The Bible says the Jews require a sign. And they were external. They were of this earth. They were a physical people. And all that they had physically, pictures, what you and I have spiritually. Now God states here, by the way, that this was a sign of verse 11. It doesn't mean that it was a means by entering into the covenant. It was a sign of the covenant that they already had, they always already wanted to enjoy. It's indicated that they, they intended to walk in its realm. It wasn't the means. And that's important because it kind of sets a pattern because today some people like to think that that baptism, which is parallel or similar, is a means of salvation, when in reality we know it is a declaration of salvation. It's a declaration of faith in Christ when a person trusts Christ. Because we know in Titus 3, 5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy he saved us with the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Salvation today is a spiritual birth, but we picture it with an external sign when we declare our faith in Christ. And when you person chooses to, to be water baptized, they're declaring publicly their identification with Christ and they're belonging to him as a child of God. Now here it tells us in this passage that refusal to be circumcised as a uh, descendant of Abraham or one born in his house or one purchased and lived in his house, Refusal meant expulsion from the, from the blessing of the covenant. It, didn't, it had nothing to do with salvation, but it, but, it, but it meant expulsion from the family and from the enjoyment of the blessing of the covenant in their lives. And it's much like people today, when we refuse the terms of the new covenant, there is a, there is a consequence, is there not? I want to turn with a moment, if you, with a moment to, over to... Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And what does the New Testament say about circumcision? It has much to say, so I feel we cannot ignore that at this point. We understand, and we're not going to go through the passage this morning, but in Acts chapter 15, there was a council held on the question, was should the Gentile believers, should these new Gentile believers be circumcised? Should they be brought under the law of Moses? And we find in Acts chapter 15, this council meeting and come to the conclusion, no, not necessarily so. Why bring them under a law and, and, and under the law when they have found a new, new life through Christ alone? And you can read that passage as James and the elders in Jerusalem, along with Paul and Barnabas, came to that conclusion. And here in Galatians chapter 2, I start, I'll keep turning here, we find here a reference to that. Let's go ahead and start with verse 1. He says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, 
but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Now those in reputation were the leaders in Jerusalem. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek or a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. Well, you know the book of Galatians is all about law versus grace and the fact that we are no longer under the law. We are under the, under the, the guidance of grace in our lives today rather than under the guidance of the law. And there were those who tried, tried to bring these new Christians under the law and, and, and that's the battle Paul wages here in the book of Galatians. Because we know the law works wrath. It brings bondage. And we find freedom in Christ. Freedom from eternal damnation. Freedom from the evil influences of the world in which we live. And so Paul says, we didn't yield for a moment. We didn't yield submission even for an hour. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Indicating to us that a mixture of law and grace perverts the gospel. But Paul wanted the gospel to be pure. So he did not allow them a foothold in the message he preached. But from those who seem to be some, something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows pers personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me, those who claim to have authority, he's saying. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles of the world, had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles, and then when James, Cephas, and John, who seem to be pillars, this is referring to Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, perceiving the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas a right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor and the very thing which I was also eager to do and so on. And so this is a reference to that, that conclusion they came to, that no, we do circumcision is not necessary for, for, for the Gentiles believers today. It was a sign for Israel in the Old Testament of their participation in the covenant. Let's turn next to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Often when this circumcision is mentioned in the New Testament, it's referring to, uh, the, um, to Jews and oftentimes to the legalistic Jews who were trying to pervert the gospel of grace, but there are also lessons to be learned from circumcision in the New Testament. Here in Romans chapter 2, what we find here is, is in verse 28 is this. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Well, the essence of this passage is Paul saying that for the believer, one who is truly a son of Abraham, which Paul makes that argument in Galatians as well, is one who has faith in Christ, one who has been set apart inwardly. And here he takes circumcision, an external ritual, makes it an internal possession. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, the circumcision that is of the heart. And that's not a physical circumcision, is it? That is a spiritual circumcision. It really refers to our sanctification in which we are set apart to God. Because physical circumcision in the Old Testament set a Jew apart as distinct, as a, as a child of Jehovah, as a member of the commonwealth of Israel. 
Spiritual circumcision is our sanctification in which in the heart we are set apart to God. And that is a work the Spirit of God does in our hearts the moment we trust Christ as Savior. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we see a reference to this. Here in Colossians 2, just verse 11, it says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And so God has taken this Old Testament ritual and turned it into a New Testament spiritual lesson that we are circumcised without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We are set apart to him. And just as in the Old Testament, that circumcision was a sign. It was an indicator and a seal of the covenant. So we have the sealing of the Spirit today, do, do we not? The circumcision of the heart is all about the work of the Spirit in our hearts in which he places us into the body of Christ. He identifies us with Christ, and he becomes a seal, we're told, of that covenant promise that God made to us of eternal salvation. Let's turn back a couple pages to Philippians chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for to me to write these same things to you is not tedious, but to you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation or of the circumcision. He's warning them against those false teachers who are trying to bring New Testament believers under the law through circumcision. In verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And so once again, he refers to the inner circumcision of the heart. And if you are a believer here this morning, the Spirit of God has come to indwell you. We know Romans 8 tells us if any man does not have the Spirit of God, he's not a child of God. And that coming of the Spirit is not only a seal of our salvation in Christ, but it is also a brand. He brands us with the, with the indwelling of the Spirit to set us apart to Christ, identifying us, identifying us not only with Jesus Christ, as we're placed into Christ, the term that the Bible likes to use, but also with one another. We become part of the family, just as Old Testament circumcision did for the, for the Jewish people. And so today we enjoy what the sign and the seal that the Old Testament Israel had in the Old Testament is our internal sanctification, or setting apart to God today. Let's turn to Acts chapter 28. 26, excuse me, Acts chapter 26. And so in reality, when you see the term sanctification in the New Testament, you can understand the reference, the, the illustration that it represents in the Old Testament circumcision of the physical circumcision of God's people. Now our sanctification, our setting apart to God, is both in a positional and practical in the scriptures. And notice here in... In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, where Paul, here stating his purpose, let's start with verse 17. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light for the power of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified by faith in me. We know salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, don't we? Jesus paid the price and full on the cross, and our faith rests wholly upon him for our eternal salvation. But part of that salvation package includes this as aspect of being set apart to me. 
And that's what God is saying back in Genesis 17, 1, when he says, walk before me. What he's saying is realize your positional sanctification. Realize to whom you belong. You see, we belong to God both by virtue of, crea of, of creation. He is our creator. He owns us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. But we also belong to him by virtue of redemption. He has purchased us with his own blood. We belong to him, and that's what it means to be sanctified by faith. When we put our faith in him, we, we become his child. We're all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are positionally sanctified. Let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Let's, I want you to see this again. And when you see the term sanctification in Scripture, oftentimes it refers to our standing in Christ as a child of God. We belong to Him. It is interesting, I think, that when God here initiates circumcision as, a, as an identifying mark of Abraham and his family, he introduces that chapter with walk before me. He's talking about that very concept, to whom you belong. And circumcision because it becomes that sign just as the Spirit of God who coming into our lives, who places us into Christ and identifies us with the body of Christ is our sign and seal of our salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And you see, the Spirit is the agent of our sanctification and our justification. Jesus is the basis, and thus we are set apart. If you are a Christian this morning, you belong. You're branded, so to speak. You're not like one of those wild horses or cattle running across the prairies without, a, without an owner, without a brand. You belong. The Spirit of God is that sanctifying mark in your heart and life to whom you belong. In reality, isn't that what the world's looking for today? In all its pursuits for pleasure and fulfillment in life, they, people want to belong. They just want to belong. They want to be loved. They want to have a sense of purpose. But, it's, but those are fulfilled in our identity in Christ, isn't it? Well, sanctification is also meant to be practical. We're in our lives as well. Turn with me over to the first over to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter four. And the last half of that statement, "Walk before me and be perfect," we find practical sanctification, don't we? It really is that illustration for us: walk before me and understand your identity. And then be perfect. Live it out in your lives. Live like a child of God ought to live. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want verses 3 and 4 when I get there. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So there is second phase salvation, some would call it, practical sanctification if you prefer to call it, but it is, it is to be worked out. Our identity in Christ is to show. We're to live it out in our lives. We're to possess our vessels in sanctification. That means everything we do should reflect our identity, our Savior, our Father. That's who we are. That's how our life should be. You know, when we, when we go through life, we should work, not like others work, but like Christ would have us to work. When we play, we should play not like others play, but like Christ would have us to play. We belong to him. 
And that is, we find, the place of greatest joy in our lives, where salvation is to be practical. And when God said, be holy, going back to that verse in 1 Peter, that's what he's saying. Be holy like I am holy. I'm the pattern. And what I want to do in, in your life is to reflect myself so people see my image in the mirror of your lives. How about chapter 5, verse 23? Does not may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely? Well, this is unpositional sanctification. We are already set apart in Christ. This is practical sanctification. And God wants to do it completely. He wants to finish the work. He wants you to completely reflect Christ. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is God's work, isn't it? And what I like about this is may the God of peace himself sanctify you. This is his work. God's not running or telling you to run around and duplicate some legalistic Christian behaviors. He's saying just allow the work of the Spirit of God to reflect the person of God in you. It's His work. The God of peace. It's God Himself that does the work in our lives as He conforms us to Christ. So really all we have to do is respond. When God pushes a button, we say thank you. When He brings conviction, we say, okay, Lord. When He gives us a new teaching, we say, help me to live it, Lord. Those adjustments are need to be made in every year, day, week of our lives. As we come before God, God is making us like Christ. It's simple, isn't it? And that's what it means to come before him and being perfect. In John 17, in the Lord Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, sanctify them through your truth, your word is truth. And that's how it is accomplished. God, through his, through his word, makes us Christ-like. And this is really this pattern we see going back to Genesis 17, is really what God expects for humanity. Not just for Abra Abraham. You see, the gospel, the good news of salvation, is not an optional way to live. It is God's solution for lost mankind. God does not expecting people, though he understands people may reject him, he's not expecting that. He bankrupt heaven took his only son, the perfect, spotless son of God, to offer him as a sacrifice for your sins and mine. It cost God everything. We'll never understand the depths of that love and no doubt spend eternity praising the glories of that love. And, and, and therefore, the offer of salvation is not simply a, you know, if you don't feel like living like, you know, this religion or that religion, why don't you try my religion? It's not that. It's not a, it's not a multiple choice. It is, the one, there is one entry to this to this to this question and Jesus asked it when he said to Mary and Martha believest thou this this is God's plan it's, and so salvation is God's plan and being Christ like is his plan it's a restoration and rescue program and though throughout the word of God we see God acknowledging those, those that reject it and those that will bring themselves under judgment because of the rejection of covenant promises that God made in the Lord Jesus Christ just like the expulsion of those here in Genesis 17 who refused God's directives. The alternative to following God's directives, salvation through Christ, growing in grace, is doing what's right in our own eyes. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Genesis 6.5, before the terrible flood, 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what happens when we're left to ourselves. Romans chapter 1 makes it pretty clear how far down we can go when we're left to ourselves. In the last days before the coming, before the tribulation and, retur- and the eventual return of Christ, we see the, that evil, the evil is going to wax worse and worse and worse. People are, gonna, are going to dump the Bible teachers and heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, those that bring them satisfaction and entertainment. And in fact, the tragedy is that the very eve of the return of Christ on that white horse in judgment, there will be those shaking their fists at God. Though they know he is the eternal God, and he brought judgment upon the world in the period of tribulation, and rather than repent, rather than turn to Christ, rather than put their faith in Christ, they shake their fists at God as they go into eternal condemnation. Tragic. And that's why it's tragic when a child of God leaves God out of their lives. Tragic. We don't live the life God's way. Because the it might be right in our own ways, but it leads us in a wrong direction. Always look at it that way. Back in Genesis 17, then, we, we shift gears here a little bit from, from the change of Abram's name to Abraham to the sign of the covenant to Sarah in verse 17. It says, And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And so here God makes it clear. In the next verse, he says, As for Ishmael, I'm going to make him a great nation. He says, I'm going to bless him. He's going to be fruitful. He's going to be multiply exceedingly. And he shall beget 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I'm going to establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. And so for those children of Ishmael who claim rights to the covenant promises because of children of Abraham, um, they're biblically incorrect. They do not have that foundation. God makes it perfectly clear here, though both were sons of Abraham, My covenant is going to be fulfilled through the line of Isaac here. And God makes that perfectly clear that Sarah is going to bear him a son. In fact, in the New Testament, these two sons are used as an illustration of the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. One was born of the flesh, a bondwoman of a bondwoman, the other was born of the spirit. And so, though God blesses, Ishmael, in answer to Abram's request, may Ishmael live before you. He says that my plan is going to go on. And this is my plan, that Isaac is going to inherit the promise, promises, and Sarah is going to be the mother of that nation. But before we get into this and end up getting way over time, let's, be, let's cut it off here and pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who carries out your promises, your plan, your program. And Father, though we see many simple lessons of faith, Father, of salvation and sanctification in the person of Abraham. And Father, we do recognize that you are carrying out a plan and a program for your people. And you have a plan for your people, Israel, a plan that will yet be fulfilled in eternity future. And though you have set them aside, as Romans tells us, for a time, They will someday be restored, as we see throughout the Old and New Testaments. In the meantime, Father, you're building your church. 
and you're, pre you're preparing a bride for Christ. And Father, there, we thank you for those promises of eternal salvation that we have in Christ for the fullness of blessing as we walk with Christ in daily living. And Father, it all points to the fact that you are a God who is able to carry out your plan in the affairs of men. No matter, despite the wickedness of man and where it takes them in, in the earth, Father, thank you that you are sovereignly in control over our lives. And so, Father, help us to walk before you, to understand our identity. Help us to be perfect, to mature, to be whole as we seek to walk in the new life we have in Christ. Make these things real and practical to us now in our lives, we pray for your glory and our blessing. In Jesus' name. <laughs>